0: Autism Through Cinema Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast Investigating Autistic Presence and Expression on Screen This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project Based at Queen Mary, University of London And funded by the Wellcome Trust For more on this project, please visit our website autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at cinemaautism at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, the team discussed the 1972 documentary Asylum, directed by Peter Robinson. Just a quick content note here that this episode reflects upon life inside mental health institutions, so please use discretion if that's a sensitive topic for you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion.
1: Um, Okay, Uh, hello and welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. I'm Alex Widderson, a PhD student at Queen Mary University on the Autism Through Cinema project. I'm investigating the ethics of representing autism as someone who's not autistic and I'm joined with me today by David, Georgia and Janet. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves.
0: Hello, I'm uh, Dr. David Hartley. I uh, have just finished my PhD in creative writing at the University of Manchester, uh, where I partly looked at the representation of autism and neurodiversity in sci-fi and fantasy cinema. And I've also written a novel, but the less said about that the better, I think probably at the moment. (laughs) That's me.
2: Um, Hi, I'm Georgia, Georgia Bradburn. Um, I'm an undergraduate film student at Queen Mary University. And I also have a blog, the autistic film critic, write about Um, films from a neurodiverse perspective as an autistic person myself I really enjoy analysing and looking at films through the optic of autism.
3: Hi I'm Janet Harbord Uh, I co-lead the project Autism Through Cinema um, with Stephen Eastwood at Queen Mary Um, and I'm interested in uh, autism and uh, its impact on the way in which cinema has developed as a language Um, and also questions of empathy.
1: So I was responsible for um, suggesting Asylum, uh, 1972, a documentary directed by Peter Robinson. So I'll give it a little introduction, uh, but I think before I start talking about the film, I should probably make clear my affiliations with the Philadelphia Association, who is the organisation that set up the therapeutic communities that are covered in this documentary. I was there artist in residence uh, from 2016 to 2018. And I was also a member of a SAGE Community Arts, a spin-off organization. I did their introductory course in philosophy and psychotherapy, and I regularly attend events there and I've made several films with the PA. So there's very much a sort of strong sense of affection and bias towards the Philadelphia Association and their ideological position coming from me. But um, I think putting that aside for a second, I'll introduce the film. This is Asylum and uh, it's from 1972, Peter Robinson directing and uh, it's very much of its time. It's uh, a product of a period in psychiatry where the, drugs, uh, the psychiatric drugs were not particularly effective and quite blunt tools, but also mental hosp- hospitals were sort of still considered quite oppressive spaces mostly. Uh, the anti-psychiatry movement had been developing globally for a good decade, um, dr- um, probably longer than that, actually, and drawing attention, particularly to patients' rights and systems of power that divided uh, doctors and patients that potentially created more problems than they resolved. Asylum begins with a title card that explains that the documentary crew had lived with the at the therapeutic community for six weeks whilst recording this film. R.D. Lang introduces the sort of ethos of the archway house, the PA community, um, arguing that it is a place that offers the true meaning of asylum. Um, the so-called patients and psychiatrists try, attempt to live as equals. I mean, they're not actually referred to as patients. They're just house house members. And so this sort of flat hierarchy is sort of promoted and the informal power imbalance it, the power balances between those who uh, have sort of psychiatric qualifications and those who are living in the house are dissolved as much as possible. Um, While well, Lang's uh, colleagues, David, David Cooper were like radical Marxists, uh, focusing very much on the sort of uh, revolutionary act of psychiatry. Um, Lang himself uh, sort of didn't wholly reject the psychiatric goals of traditional medicine. He was just more interested in modernizing psychiatry and drawing, in, drawing in, uh, from influences of continental philosophy and uh, count the countercultural movement. Um, but you know, he had some pretty bold ideas, such as the idea that uh, beyond the sort of power structures in a hospital, they were actually sort of problematic and potentially toxic elements that he detected in the families of some of his schizophrenic patients, uh, later developing an argument that um, families were just as much sort of systems of ideological control as the hospitals and the state. So, I mean, this all sort of threads within 60s countercultural ideologies, and um, these were experimental spaces where they sort of developed new modes of living outside the systems of uh, medicine and um, the sort of uh, nuclear family. Um, you know, it could be said that with the improvements and proliferation of psychiatric diagnosis and med- medication right now, the anti-psychiatrist movement has sort of never been weaker, but I would argue that they did a lot of work to raise awareness of patients' rights and actually a modern version, critical psychiatry exists today, um, drawing attention to the sort of philosophical aspects of uh, relationship between um, the individual medicine and, and practice. But essentially, uh, we're here today to discuss how sort of notions of self-determination, liberation and ethics in the anti-psychiatry movement are relevant to the neurodiversity paradigm. And I'm also interested in how the, how the sort of choices made by the documentary crew in particular were able to adopt and represent the ethos ideologies of this neurodiverse household. So... I mean, maybe another thing I'm quite happy to mention is that I have uh, lived experience of psychosis and sort of can empathise quite strongly with some of the people living in this household. And I think it's uh, quite a sort of visceral experience for me to watch it and be reminded of what it was like uh, not quite having control over everything I chose to do. Yeah, and so I think that, personal experience has been one of the things that got me interested in the neurodiversity paradigm and sort of different modes of living and being uh, and trying to embrace that sense of difference and create room for it in society rather than working towards a norm so that's my introduction
0: thanks alex i i yeah i found this film really interesting this was the first time i'd i'd seen this film um I've seen some of Peter Robinson's work, and and I was familiar with R.D. Lang, um, but not not hugely familiar with his work, but familiar with him as a person. So this this film was very new to me. I, I found it really interesting and really moving, and uh, a very compelling film to watch. Um, at times, I did feel a little as if i mean you're always going to get this i think with documentary films uh, i feel as if we were sort of intruding a little on the space that we were kind of um i don't want to say the word exploitative i don't feel like it was an exploitative film but i think with documentaries you're never really too far away from that that we are observing these people and in many on many occasions watching them getting quite upset or having getting angry or get, having meltdowns and so on which can be a bit uncomfortable to watch in some regards but then on the other side of that the flip side of that coin is um what i really appreciated with this film is uh, a, a, an honest and sort of um well-meaning uh, um capturing i suppose of of this kind of uh neurodivergence of this kind of um Uh, look at people who have these difficult mental challenges I suppose but in a way that seemed that was not too um, too over dramatized or too extreme and I think the reason why I appreciate that coming from my own personal point of view so my uh, older sister who's autistic and has learning difficulties uh, lives in a, a shared home a sort of assisted living place which I think is a really is a, is a, it seems to be a really really good place. She seems to thrive there and, and really enjoy a, a time there. Um, but without going too much into my my family history, previously to the time when she was living in this place, she was living on her own Um, uh, in an, a, an attempt to sort of live in a in a house on her own with various carers who would come in and, and look after her. And that was a situation that did not work at all. And and for my sister that was that was really bad. So when she moved into this. Uh, assisted living um, situation with other residents her situation improved massively and it was largely because she was with people and socializing with other people uh, other autistic people and she's been there for many years now and and has has thrived and I thought that that was that for me is a really uh, I felt that sort of connection with this film as well because what you get in this film is um, individuals well, I think the the idea is that they are schizophrenics, although we might say that they they might get sort of different diagnoses these days. Um, but it, you know, there's a community there; they all live together. There all there's a kind of inequality there. There is diff there is difference between them, and there is fractures between them. But they seem to try and work it out between them, which which felt really um, really nice, really communal. And I think, yeah, going back to my earlier point, I think what I what I appreciated was just having the opportunity to see this type of person on screen because that just doesn't happen generally. And I sometimes I think about that often with in regards to my sister, because I feel like my sister's variation of autism and learning difficulties is something that's just very, very rarely seen in any kind of media, whether that's in fictional media in a kind of representation or in. Uh, a sort of documentary format it's so rare to see this and I think that that mean that makes it an important film it makes it important that these people have are seen and are not just closed away um and not just institutionalized and are not just removed from society and just cut out um because there is still a tendency I think for that to happen but there's you know for taking my own personal example there's real my sister has real joys and 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 there's a real silliness to her that she adds to the world and and that's something that i feel like other people miss out on because she doesn't live within normal in inverted commas uh, society um so i think that's what i think that was my most personal reaction to this film and and something that i really i think i really appreciated
2: i also wasn't uh familiar with the film <laughs> Um, or R.D. Lang, or, or the Philadelphia Association. I wasn't. I didn't know anything about this. So for me, I came in like with fresh eyes, not really knowing, and not having much knowledge about um, um, psychiatry uh, and things like that. Um, but I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed watching it. Um, I I tried to keep kind of like an active role when watching it because I'm always quite conscious of, of documentaries like that of it being too kind of. Ethnographic. I don't want to be kind of um, made to be just someone who is like looking at these specific people under like a lens as someone who is very different and, you know, sort of putting myself on a hierarchy. Like, I did not want that to happen. So I sort of tried to keep like an open mind. Um, One of the things that I really liked about it is um, because obviously there isn't too much interference from the filmmakers, a lot of it is just showing how. These people live like truthfully um, in day-to-day life. And when, when you do that, these certain characters emerge in the residence of the home. Um, and you see how they interact with each other. You see kind of alliances, conflicts, specifically, I can't remember any names. I think David's the one who's who's the kind of talks and no one really knows what he's saying. And then the girl. <clears throat> um, and then they they kind of up a kind of she's really distressed by him constantly talking and and then towards the end you get quite a tender moment with David where he kind of opens up a bit more um and so I think I think like David said I think films like this are important because it it lets you see these people not as they're you know framed in someone else's words kind of you just see them living authentically and with each other because every one of them is very very different And so you don't fall into the mistake of categorizing them as the same type of person because they're all still different people, but they do have a shared like, disability, learning disability. Um, Whether the diagnoses vary, I'm I'm not sure. Um, But yeah, it was refreshing for me to see kind of those people interacting with each other and not just like, you know, an interviewer talking to specific people one by one as like specific subjects as in like you know quite in a quite a scientific way I I mean at times I did sort of think it did it did feel a bit invasive and and um I had to think about what is it ethical to kind of show those kind of moments of trauma on on camera especially with with the girl and um there's there a moment where they don't show it they just show the audio i think of i think it's david when he's he's le- um lashing out and attacking someone um and they're quite traumatic moments for people um and and i suppose on the one hand it you know it is important to be able to see um how these people live and the, that thing that's part of everyday life and shouldn't be swept under the carpet you know it's just a part of who they are but um at the same time you know at, at what point are we kind of looking at it with curiosity and at one point are we kind of saying I'm on a different level to you, you know, like um, status wise. And I haven't, I haven't watched that many documentaries about um, neurodiversities, which is ironic because I'm, I'm neurodiverse myself, but um, I, I think thinking about how that is represented, I think these questions of like, what is, Kind of looking scientifically and ethnographically, and what is representing someone truthfully is quite is quite a difficult area to navigate. But I'm interested to just to explore it more. I think, yeah, that's what I have to say.
3: I, I'm just listening to your comments there and thinking about that that dynamic between um, people who are institutionalized and shut away from society, and and then this being kind of the opposite of that a film as a visualizing and a making public of, of the lives of, um, of these people. And um, I guess I was remembering as you were speaking, um, both David and Georgia, that sort of sense of, of, of discomfort at moments in the film, particularly early on um, and not being sure whether I was watching people suffering or not, and and whether it was okay to watch people suffering, and I think that to begin with, I did I, I thought it probably wasn't okay, and then as the film went on, I became um, much more aligned with that that sense of of it being okay actually that people were just experiencing their environment differently in in those moments in the film, and we're we're allowed to kind of be witnesses to that, and I think that the length of the film allows you as a viewer to kind of begin to relax into that world and 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 be there with those people in a way that if if that was a short news item for example that would be really problematic but because we have this this quite long period of being with them and we have a sense of their um of their their personalities over a number of days or more than days, in fact, um, in relation to a number of, of people who come and go in house as well as, as each other. Um, I think we get much more of a sense of, of, of who they are than, than just those moments of suffering. But I think it is, I mean, I think it is a question that the film asks us to, to think about, you know, to what extent is it okay to be watching Watching um, these people and what 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 does it mean? You know, is it a sort of ethnography, as she was saying, Georgia? Um, one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching it is what is what, what was what is it like in terms of its film language? What kind of position is it adopting filmically? And I thought that the camera was attempting to do something a bit like Fernandellini was doing um, in France uh, at La Borde. In, uh, a similar time which was to follow people rather than to 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 observe and i think there's there's quite it's quite a difficult thing to do with with a camera um and he's in quite a confined space um in in this film he's in the quite small rooms of that north london home but i thought he i thought the film was quite successful in allowing us to sort of feel as though it, the film isn't being directed but it's it's being in a place with people and uh and, and allowing them to take the lead in, in conversation, in activity, in behaviour and, and so on. And I think that that is quite a, a radical form of filmmaking at this time. You know, I think that that documentary in the 60s had moved into sort of quite um, standard dramatic language around uh, close-ups as, you know, emotional points of identification, for example. Um, and this, this film um, coming a bit later, coming out of a tradi- different tradition, um, is trying to trying to find a language that isn't doing that kind of emotive positioning of the spectator who's you know asked to to kind of identify with the other who is held in quotes
1: i think it's uh, worth mentioning that these american filmmakers are following a sort of tradition surrounding the philadelphia association houses They started with Kingsley Hall, and it was this big sort of media um, ferrari, this idea of these radicals, these hippies sort of living with um, people with schizophrenia and no one being able to tell the difference between who was a psychiatrist and who was a patient. Like this mythology spread throughout London and America, Uh, and there was a sort of pilgrimage to Kingsley Hall from people like Sean Connery and other celebrities as well as psychiatrists from North America, which we actually see in the film. There are disillusioned psychiatrists and therapists who've chosen to live at at the PA house in order to sort of uh, figure themselves out and sort of reinvigorate what their professional goals are. And so this sort of disillusionment um of boundaries between us and them is a very deliberate thing that is promoted in the house and with the camera crew like they are addressed directly by the housemates they're asked to do favors like bring someone breakfast they're even referred to sort of metaphorically as family members in a sort of joke performance i think uh they're very much trying to live the ethos of the house in those 6 weeks while they're staying there Um, they're trying to be members. And I think there are lots of members of the house who are quieter, who sit there, they observe, they interfere less in the house discussions. And I think they're pretty much uh, adopting the gaze of one of these frequent um, visitors in allowing us to sort of engage that way as a visitor, which was very much part of the tradition.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, both of those discussions, because... I did spend quite a bit of of time when I was watching this film sort of wondering who the the residents were and who the psychiatrists were in some respects. Um, I mean, in some respects, it's it's, it's quite obvious who the residents are. And in others, there are people who, as you say, are kind of Sort of halfway between the two or or our psychiatrists would have checked themselves in as well um and it was interesting to have that kind of blurring and it wasn't obvious who like everyone was just dressed the same pretty much they're just in you know very casual clothes and everyone looking very 70s and 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 that sort of added to that kind of blending of of who what who who was in sort of which position and i really i kind of it really liked that about it because it did get it sort of allowed you to see I don't know, there was there was, this, there was a kind of a discourse of power that runs through all of this, and you're sort of always wondering who is, who is the person who is in power in a certain situation. But of course, the kind of anti-psychiatry movement seems to be about trying to remove as much of that power as possible and trying to sort of level it out a bit more. And yet there still has to be an element of sort of some power and control. And so we get that kind of quite lengthy scene towards the end when there's a sort of if you like, a kind of intervention upon um, David who has um, lashed out to a couple of the the members and, and that seems to have be being addressed. And you do have in that room a, a, an individual who is um, sort of leading that therapeutic uh, session and sort of breaking... Okay, so uh, so Alex has just put in the chat that that's... Leon Reeder, is that right? Leon Redler. Leon Redler, okay, Leon Redler. And that was a it was a really interesting moment. But part of what was what was uh, in my mind at that point was the the big question of that scene was why is David, who seems to be in some ways the kind of most problematic or most volatile resident, I suppose, why is he quote unquote acting up? Why is he why is he distressed? And it's and it's it's taking a long time for the other residents and Leon Redler and um. The other psychiatrist in the house to to figure out why he's reacting in the way that he is, and I couldn't help but think it seemed to be that he, this this David's reaction came from um, uh, new members of new new people coming in, new residents coming in, and sort of disrupting the the flow, I suppose, of the of the of his world and his and his life. But then I couldn't help but relate that to then to the documentary crew and wonder just how much. If the documentary crew's presence was having any kind of problematic um, uh, issue within the house, whether they their their presence there, because I know that they lived with them for a good long while, but whether the fact that the camera was there and the mic boom was there and these people are are outsiders to this world, despite the fact that they're living with them for a while, has that had any kind of disruptive effect on the house? And I couldn't help but th- but wonder if. If that was a problem that had contributed to to, to the flare-up of David's psychiatric issues um it's never really said or addressed and it doesn't it, there's never really an indication that that's the case like he's not getting angry at the camera or the cameraman or anything like that but I just wondered about how the introduction of this documentary crew, if that caused ripples within that house and if so has that then been as has that been addressed I was sort of surprised that that wasn't really directly addressed by the film and that um, and if it was addressed and it was sort of perhaps it was edited out so I then began to wonder what's been edited out in terms of in relation to how the patients react to the to the crew and we do have that, lo- that lovely scene at the beginning which I was really glad of which is when they're in the kind of kitchen area and this is when we first get to see uh, Julia who was a really interesting person who you sort of hear off camera talking about the camera and then asks for her picture to be taken and then the camera sort of pans around and finds her and she sort of sits there at first seemingly quite sort of happy about being filmed and and uh, asking questions and and r- introducing herself and pointing to various people in the room and introducing them as well and it's, it's quite a warm and a quite comical moment and a, a nice moment but so that for me was a moment when the film went from being just a you know, a kind of fly on the wall type thing to something where the the documentary crew were actually a bit more involved in the film, and you start to see the mic boom, and you you briefly see the director, and so on. But then I was, yeah, I was concerned by the end that, that perhaps the presence of the documentary crew hadn't necessarily been addressed if that had been problematic at the time when they came in. I think that was the only thing that by the end of the film I was sort of wondering, I suppose, um, and whether that did contribute to any of the problems that you see sort of captured on the, on the screen.
1: So um, this uh, film is written about in some of the sort of most important... 1970s sort of documentary ethics texts, and I think that's partly because one of the associate producers was um, Alan Rosenthal, who uh, wrote New Documentary Challenges or edited New Documentary Challenges, like a sort of seminal collection of, uh, of essays on ethics, and so they're all working the same network in America, um, coming over and and discussing and sort of establishing documentary ethics based on social sciences conventions and um, I think what they were working against was a sort of what's what would now be called extractive documentary practice where you sort of dive into a community capture as much material and then leave and edit it and control its dissemination without ever really consulting with that community again and the approach to The edit of this film was to sort of show four hours of of the rushes that already chopped down and sort of see what the uh, household think of it, screen it and discuss it, and then work towards an edit collaboratively, but uh, obviously more control being in the hands of the film team, but essentially sort of checking in with the community. Also, their presence in the first place being authorised by the households and voted upon so it was sort of matters of consent were sort of prioritized throughout the process and including the finishing of the film or the edit of the film so um i think they were very conscious but it was a sort of earlier period in documentary before um sort of reflexive practice had really developed they weren't thinking too much about the relationship between the film and the audience they're very much thinking about how do we organize the relationship between the filmmakers and the participants and mostly it sort of follows this observational sort of convention that has strong roots in ethnography but I think you know they're trying they are trying to be a bit more involved as well and and willing to show those moments of imperfection where there's a direct relationship with the camera and the camera crew so yeah I mean I think you're right though that there isn't a real consideration for just how much impact a camera crew can have on a community but we do know that they were
3: up for it just to to be um uh, to, to to bring in an opposing point of view it, it it does feel to me as though the film could is a vehicle for lang to a certain extent and i think he appears halfway through he's a kind of midpoint so he's he's centralized by the editing and he delivers his Interpretation of asylum, it kind of unlocks the meaning of the film for us. So I think there's something about the way in which the film has been constructed in the edit, despite the viewing of, of the rushes collectively um, and having permission from uh the residents for, for the film to be exhibited publicly and so on. So sort of ethically, the clearances are made, the practice is good, but nonetheless, sort of lang. It could be argued is the star of the show, and I think that there are moments in the film that seem to showcase his his ideas. For example, when um, I think it's Jamie, um, there's a conversation about his his father coming. How long he's going to stay at the house? There seems to be there seems to be quite a, an ongoing debate for a number of residents. Are they coming back? When they leave, are they coming back? And is it good for them? What's good for them? Who knows what's good for them? Um, how do they take these decisions and we see Jamie trying to take this decision and and his father arriving Um, and that that discussion about the chest of drawers where the resident worker I think it is is that right says to him uh, says with father well you know Jamie Jamie pushing that out of his room into the hallway is you know maybe that's telling you something and then there's kind of a bit of silence and then maybe that's telling you something about the family and it feels a very kind of like and have you read R.D. Lang actually um you know there were, there were moments like that in it where I think there is quite a strong presence of Lang as an authority so I, I I think there could be an argument made about the film in that way.
1: I mean absolutely these like the people who work at the houses and or work is maybe Uh, the people who are house therapists and the people who live in the houses were more or less uh, followers of Lang in the sort of most cultish way of thinking about it. I mean, he was, had unprecedented sort of authority over the sort of not authority in a sort of authoritarian way, but in terms of a sort of leader and an, an inspirational figure, you know, I've met many people who moved to the UK just to be in the same country and city as Lang and, Uh, It was very much sort of a a sort of charisma that was turbocharged uh, that drew people in. Yeah, and that sort of fueled the the origins of the the Philadelphia Association massively drowning out the contributions of other members of the collective. So, yeah, I think you're you're certainly on the money there when it comes to sort of Lang's haunting presence.
0: Yeah, I wonder if we should... uh talk about the, uh, the the title a bit more uh, uh, asylum and yeah we get this kind of moment with from lang in the in the middle where he sort of <clears throat> reveals his thoughts on the on the word asylum it's almost a trying to a, a, an attempt to almost reclaim the word asylum i, I suppose from its kind of psychiatric uh, associations more back towards asylum as a as a refuge as a home uh, for people to come to um in the way that we would use it these days for asylum seekers. Um and I think what I, what I wanted to mention because this is one of the things I, that was in my mind as I was watching this film was the difference you get here compared to um more sort of popular representations of asylums. So I was thinking of course about One Through Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I was thinking about um Girl Interrupted. Um I was thinking about a little bit about 12 Monkeys, the Terry Gilliam film which has got a a kind of insane asylum in it at one point with with brad pitt running around looking very wild-eyed and i i had those those films in my mind while i was watching this for obvious reasons but i think what was interesting for me was uh, so when i think about films like one Field with the cookies nest and girl interrupted what you've got there are in in many ways sort of glamorous character actors pretending to be mad and performing that with all of the kind of wildness and sort of craziness and sort of running around and exaggerating movements and big wide eyes and very outward expressions. Whereas I felt here what we got was an interesting insight into more of the reality of what uh, uh, people with challenging mental situations kind of look like and act like and behave like and I think one of the things that struck me was sort of watching the patients was seeing this kind of reservedness to a lot of them or a kind of quietude or a kind of sort of inwardness which I feel was a reflection on partly perhaps a reflection on how these people have had to try and navigate through the world through life and society and I've ended up feeling um having to be closed in or having to be sort of pressured into sort of very much looking at themselves constantly. And so you get this kind of downcast look quite a lot, this kind of a ver- aversion of eye contact, a, a careful kind of controlled uh, movements, which I felt really contrasted with the kind of Hollywood interpretation, I suppose, of what it means to be quote unquote mad or, or have a, a psychiatric condition, which is for these films I mentioned always very outward and wild and and energetic and quite frightening and um unhinged and so on and so i just thought it was interesting that we have in our popular representations we have these what a representation of a psychiatric institute or an asylum um, as these sort of very wild and open expressive places whereas in reality perhaps the opposite of that is true and i thought that that was one of the things that was quite striking about this film and quite interesting and something that i think is important i think to acknowledge and 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 notice that actually people who do end up in these situations whether it's in an institution or in a in a, in a shared living space like this have suffered through life and have suffered through their social position in life which is it which has made them um quite yeah self reflective and quite defensive and quite uh uh inward looking rather than outwardly expressing um so yeah that was what, i just thought that that was an interesting element to the to watching these kind of real um real people
2: yeah it definitely um has a contrast with kind of um those films from the um sixties and seventies about the a lot of the focus was on like um psychiatric hospitals and psychiatric care. Um, and one thing that I was thinking about kind of regarding the whole um, philosophy of, of that method is kind of, you know, of, of letting people um, be free in their own environment in order to help them. Because um, I think to an extent that made it harder at times for them to coexist among each other. Because there was so much friction and so much conflict because I think there's sometimes some a lack of ability to understand one another and then perhaps at times too much, you know, because I remember um, when I was in <laughs> just a little anecdote, when I was in college, my best friend was also autistic. And this is just on the nature of people with similar kind of conditions. It didn't really work us being together because I think we had very you know important but also contrasting kind of needs which you know we you know if one person needed assistance or care you know the other couldn't you know because we were kind of it out between us and it ended really badly because I don't think any of either of us could find that balance um so I was reflecting on that because I've always said since you know being friends with other autistic people is a nightmare for me but I mean looking at it um through this film in in kind of the context of like a different uh neurological conditions um I found it interesting because there's quite individual relationships that form but also it's um it's quite strange how um you know putting them in this environment to be more independent could actually create you know a lot of um a lot more trauma for people but I I don't know (laughs) I really don't know that much about it it's just a thought that came into my mind and you know the fact that those moments are represented on camera kind of struck me because it really did make me think you know how effective is this how productive is this Uh, you know um and I know that that's not kind of reflecting on the documentary itself, but um yeah um <laughs> that's all I have to say but yeah I, it made me think about the method of what they're doing and how i feel about it
0: so that is a really good point there was there's a there's a moment in the sea in the film where you get um it, uh, uh, one of the residents singing or sort of screaming really loudly whilst playing the guitar um while there's another another of the residents behind sitting behind her like with her fingers in her ears and again i was thinking of my sister at that point because if somebody were where my sister lives if they were doing that she would not cope very well with that at all like that that's loud intrusive noise that's and she she can struggle with loud intrusive noise and that would make that would really upset her and so yeah there is there is a question there about um and i'm sure that this is something that uh, rd Langard is acolytes we're continually considering but there is a, a really big question there about the kind of the clashes i guess that will always arise between people um between the different ways in which autism and other kind of conditions can manifest and and you even see that between julia and david at that near that beginning scene where we, you know he's continually talking while she's trying to do her piece to camera effectively and it upsets her that he keeps he keeps interrupting um so they, I don't know. I don't think there's a clear answer to to that situation in, in a psychiatric sense, but it is a it is a problem, and it's one that you do see, for, I think, frequently on in this film.
1: Definitely, I think um, you know from my perspective, what, there's a there's a sort of a set of choices in the for the residents. They either live in maybe hopefully supported by a family member where they have to battle against the norms of the society that have shaped them and potentially contributed to some of the uh, struggles that they're experiencing. Or they can live in this sort of uh, atypical family, this community where everybody is placed on an equal footing and when there are problems, they are negotiated and mediated as a group and with the facilitation of those people who are really invested in maintaining the harmony in the house, but they're essentially afforded the right to be individuals in whatever, in, in whatever way that is meaningful to them. And I think, you know, with this sort of great freedom that they experience immediately, they're, um, uh, sort of confronted with the freedoms of other people and they have to find a sort of harmony and a balance within that. But, um, you know, I, I think that is one of the things that was quite sort of difficult to encounter for myself, you know, my own sort of lived experience of psychosis and 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 sitting there on a psychiatric ward surrounded by other people who were having as much difficulty as I was, you know, trying to understand, oh, they're having troubles as well, really put into perspective my difficulties um, and uh, helped me appreciate some of the things I missed about more stable environments, but also helped me to manage as well with my own sense of instability. So I, don't know, I think from me, I think you're right. You know, it is a very traumatic space to exist within, but so is the outside world and in a much more coercive and insidious way. That's very true and of course we do
0: get the intrusions of of and i think they're careful to include these other the family members that come in of we do get <clears throat> we get julia's uncle who sort of takes her away for a while although we don't ever actually see a, the uncle i don't think who comes seems to have come at one weekend and just takes her away and then there's a kind of a little bit of a battle as to try and get her back but then there's the the, the father who's kind of right in the middle of of the film in many ways and, and it gets a kind of fairly extended scene where he's the father of one of the residents i can't remember the resident's name now um alex will probably pop it in the chat You knows uh back of his hand uh jamie jamie that's right we've mentioned this before but the, the the father comes in and he's talking about getting the chest of drawers and 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 you get that sense immediately while, while watching that father that you get this kind of like who who seems to be? He's a very traditional. He's he's wearing a full suit. He's very well spoken. He's uh, he's almost that kind of archetype, archetypal man of that era of being kind of, oh yes, I, I will I will f- find all of the solutions to all the problems that we have here. I've had a few thoughts about this. What do you guys? What do you chaps think? Kind of that kind of vibe gets out his checkbook to uh, to write a two. A check for two pounds to get a new chest of drawers um, and in some ways a, a bizarrely kind of almost quite comical character even though he's you know he's clearly a real real person he reminded me of the sort of characters that like Stephen fry and Hugh Laurie would play in in, in comedies um, and then has that kind of ridiculous line of thought where he starts to say um okay one other thing I want for my son is uh, for him to have a, a girlfriend now I think he's of the age now where he should have a girlfriend that will sort him out I've got this this lovely uh, girl she's not pretty but she's you know she's um she'll she'll do the job uh, so if you think that's a good idea and then maybe we could can, can subtly set set them up together and actually you're just sort of thinking where is this where is this guy coming from what is he trying to do but it's really interesting that the you know that whole thing was captured and, and included because it does as you as you were saying Alex there it does reflect that um while there may be problems within this house situation and that it might be controversial it might be difficult in some ways the alternative to that is is people like Jamie living with with somebody like that who I mean we don't get to see anything more of the father but we can sort of assume that that he's got quite traditional values and doesn't really fully understand what's going on um, in terms of Jamie's um, situation and then you see Jamie leaving as well and he's also wearing a full suit all of a sudden and it's kind of something quite sad about it, or something quite, I don't know, something, I feel like there's a comment trying to be made by the filmmakers there of, you know, this is the alternative, this is what these people are, this is the life that these people are growing up in, and other people with psychiatric problems are subjected to, and this is why they're finding it so difficult, and why this is a better alternative. There's a kind, there's a feel of that, that kind of um, argument being made, I think, in that scene.
3: yeah, if I can come in there, there are there, there are two things that you're me of that I was thinking about when I was watching, and one and one was class. Actually, I think this is an incredibly interesting film around um, psychiatry and class, and I was quite shocked to to hear Lang speak. I mean, I, keep, I keep taking it back to Lang now, but to hear his quite working class Scottish accent, um, to hear the language he uses, it's very ordinary language, um, and the range of different class positions of people in. In the home, I thought was was really interesting, um, and very unlike the kind of um, the, the the fictional film versions that that we get that you were referencing earlier. And, and the other thing that jumps out to me about this film was was the kind of trying to navigate what I felt about the the distance between now and then. That whatever this film was about, it's a long time ago, and there's something slightly comedic about. The counterculture now, about the ideas of, uh, you know, informal clothing, um, communal living, having to be negotiated in this very uh, language-heavy, direct way. You used the word liberation in your introduction, Alex, and I was thinking about that as being a word that seems to belong to then rather than now. We, we talk about community now, we don't talk about liberation of, of self- so I, I was thinking about those things as well when I was, I was watching that. In some ways, it feels like a film very much of its of its countercultural moment, in, including the, the way in which people talked about themselves through their their mental illness um, and their their dispersed selves. That that seemed to be all part of that moment, not something that you could lift out historically and and think about as, as separate to that.
1: Yeah, it's probably noteworthy to mention that they never use the words um, psychosis. They or they try and they, I think they even steer away from the use of the word schizophrenia mostly, and in, instead talk about periods of freak out or sort of freaking out, which is like very much the sort of vernacular of nineteen sixties countercultural sort of. LSD, comprehension sort of stuff. I think there's an enormous amount of romanticization of altered states of being that connects very heavily with the sort of acid culture that was spreading through uh, the West during the 60s. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's something that maybe this sort of movement and this film in particular sort of falls foul of is romanticizing a sort of very particular form of suffering because of its otherness from a sort of neurotypical perspective, a sort of liberatory moment through sort of, I mean, I think what they would be thinking about is the idea that ideology is so powerful over us that it's only through uh, sort of truly reaching sort the the limits of language and comprehension and just seeing a glimpse behind that you sort of uh, uh can have a sort of experience of what other possibilities would be um yeah and i can i can really empathize with that actually <laughs> as someone who's had a glimpse themselves but um but at the same time, you know, I, it, it pushed me in the opposite direction where I'd much rather feel very grounded and and have a sort of nice system for organizing myself <laughs> as an outcome. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, I was really shocked when I first visited the PA and, and realized just how, how sort of theoretical and how romanticized the, their conceptions of madness were. Um, I mean, it's still a fascinating space for me to engage with, but uh, it, I was very much sort of thinking of it in terms of the medical model of uh, sort of we have a norm and we have these deviations and let's try and get you back to the middle rather than the sort of neurodiverse paradigm of like, it's okay to be different. And in fact, it's quite interesting and that's all sort of work out what those identities can mean for us.
0: Yeah, I think it definitely for sure. I agree with all of that. And yeah, um, uh, there's a there's a sense also coming back to the the scene at, towards the end with with David um th- there is a sense oh, there is a bit of tension in that in that in that moment in that scene um because we've come to know at that point that David has um David can get violent uh, he has been the other residents are saying that he's been lashing out a bit and he has been hitting them and he's got this kind of energy on screen where he's sort of wandering around quite a lot and doesn't never really sits still and, and and never really stop stops talking and for me there was a there was a tension in that scene because i just felt you know is he going to lash out at any point is he going to is he going to are we going to witness him attacking somebody else here you know there's one point where he picks up quite a heavy looking jug and i sort of think or you know get slightly worried at that point and i I don't know it was interesting to see how this community addresses the possibilities of violence and um and how that and 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 how that sort of what the what the trouble with that might be or the problems with that might be because yeah i guess there's this kind of counterculture hippie idea of Peace and love everyone sit on the floor together and let's eat some some stew and everyone will be happy but there is still also the very real um pro- very real problem of of violence of uh of, of danger i suppose and it was interesting just to sort of see that being played through and sort of see that being addressed and wondering whether they f- fully had a handle on that or not um because there's a problem obviously about trying uh, going too far down the route of um softening and, and romanticizing and and sort of being gentle around i mean of course that's that, that's i feel like that that definitely is the way to sort of address this kind of thing but also to sort of not to not go too far with that and sort of put people in danger or put people in uh you know in in harm's way i suppose and uh i don't know i just thought I, I just found that that particular scene really interesting in that regard about how leon um managed to navigate that issue and in that in that in that circumstance he seems to achieve it he seems to get through to david and he seems to calm the situation down well and we get the sense that that david by the end there is something of a breakthrough i guess or a a moment where we kind of get a reflection on on him improving perhaps but it's still by the end i was still wondering is he still problematic is he still someone who's going to who might possibly lash out at other residents and is that a problem that this household has fully dealt with or not um yeah i mean i don't think the documentary ever really answers that but that was something that was in my in my head i think
1: i mean i think they try to render that as clear as they possibly can, possibly even exaggerating a cause and effect because Leon sort of presents to David a choice. Either you are responsible for your actions or you're not. And if you're not, you can't live here. You know, you have to really be responsible for your actions and we have to believe that no matter how your behavior presents itself, you're ultimately responsible for it. And then we're presented quite quickly Uh, with we see David relatively calm in that moment and then we're presented with a cut towards a scene where Robinson the director interviews David directly when he's feeling very calm and talks very coherently about his career as an engineer before before he was in the residence and before he had problems in uh, sort of acute mental health crises and and so I think you know we have no idea whether that well, it definitely didn't happen immediately after It's a daytime shot as opposed to an evening, but it could have been weeks apart. We've no idea, but it's certainly presented as a sort of cause and effect of like, if you give people the sort of dignity of being responsible for their own actions and you remind them of that occasionally, they are going to essentially have greater uh, respect for themselves and, and, control over their own behavior. Um, and they'll have to live with the consequences of not being in control of their own behavior. So there's a sort of argument built I think I think you're right that you know living with people in acute distress is quite a sort of tense experience and you know lots of things go wrong no matter if they're in state psychiatry institutions or in households where the people are trying to do it in a different way but um yeah I think they try to make this argument
3: mm i wasn't sure whether david was sedated in that final sequence you were talking about alex he seemed to be quite sort of dampened compared to his previous self in the film um he'd lost that very fast paced way of speaking and um yeah i was quite changed and i th- i th- i thought it i thought the film was also interesting in, uh in allowing us to see there wasn't one way through this of people being treated, that there weren't, there wasn't a method that was to do with banning drugs and instating uh, therapy, but that there there was sort of people were allowed to have medication if they wanted to. Um, people were allowed to come and go in the house. There wasn't, didn't seem to be assigned moments of, of psychotherapy. Um, it, it it seemed very loose, um, the way in which people were allowed to, to live. So I, I, mean, I thought that was quite genuine and really, really interesting that people were allowed um, to take decisions about their own um, health in terms of all, all of those different aspects. And that so, seems so different to, to institutions at that time. I think it's, it's also interesting to think about our attitude to drugs now in mean, med- med- medicalization of, of conditions now and to what extent um you know they're different to to those that counter- countercultural moment
1: yeah i guess i mean the the sort of proliferation of medical diagnoses and and sort of uh, statistical categories for um, how we describe uh distress really like exploded particularly in america through the dsm 5 and that sort of echoes with sort of ways of describing autism in various forms as well, um, sort of shifting towards a sort of spectrum uh, model that could potentially in- incorporate everybody in the world on some sort of position within that spectrum. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's hard to know with I mean, I don't, I've never decided in terms of mental health, if it's a good thing that, Supposedly, one quarter of us are suffering at any one moment and could be given medication for it by a doctor, or, or is it sort of diluting the idea of a sort of distinction of um, people who are in a, in a sort of acute vulnerable states and would benefit from sort of externalizing that sort of problematic element as a sort of entity that's not themselves. Uh, you know, I think yeah, there is a sort of tension between the uh, the traditional mental health perspective of like let's not call you a lunatic, let's call you someone who suffers from uh, let's call it schizophrenia, mm-hmm. and and that's separate from your identity, and that's just an illness, and we'll we'll call it an illness, which is you know changing a little bit through Mad Pride right now, but and sort of int- integration with the neurodiverse uh, neuro- neurodiversity paradigm, but. I still think is the sort of most common way in which people think about mental illness as something that invades them and is an external concept that they have to grapple with in order to get back to their true selves that are not that not that system, not part of that system. So that strongly contrasts the sort of neurodiversity model of like, I don't have autism, I am autistic.
0: One other thing I just wanted to throw in here um, about this there was another thing that was on that i was thinking about while i was watching and i've not really got a a, a grand point here but um uh, one of the i was i was sort of thinking where are we now with documentary filmmaking in terms of um you know what how what sort of documentaries can we point towards that are looking at the uh, autism and so on? And the one that came to my mind was one that I w- watched fairly recently. It was on the I think it was on the BBC. It's probably still on the BBC uh, iPlayer. It was a documentary about Jordan, uh, the glamour model Jordan, Kate, Katie Price and her son. It's called something like Autism and Me, something like that, Katie Price, Autism and Me. Anyway, it's a documentary following her around with her son as she tries to... Um, he's he's he recently turned 18 and she's trying to get him into a um assisted living style place and so what you get there in that in that documentary is it's quite a traditional documentary in many ways but you get like um insight into kind of modern places where autistic people with learning difficulties and uh, other neurodivergences who need sort of support can end up going to can end up living and there was actually it's quite an interesting documentary in many ways in some ways it's like it's all very well and good because obviously katie price has got a lot of money so she can afford to have a massive house and she can afford to put her uh, son into a uh, into an into an institution of of those kinds but another way it was interesting because we got to sort of an insight into these places and i was reminded of it whilst watching this film because it felt as if the attitudes, I guess, and the the uh, discourse of the R.D. Lang anti-psychiatry movement has had an impact upon the way in which we treat uh, mental health, the way in which we uh, envisage people with mental health issues, and and the, the manner in which we've moved away largely from um, a kind of institutionalisation model. Because these places where where Katie Price was saying that, you know, wanting to, to to her son to live were brilliant. They were amazing. They were really lovely. They, they, clearly, the staff were really well trained and were really nice. And the places themselves were uh, really well thought out and thought through. And there was all sorts of various different methods that were being used on the, der- the different residents that were there. Not perfect by any means, but it certainly showed that we've come a long way, I think, in terms of the, the places that, that that people with these sorts of conditions live. And there was an interesting reflection on that in that documentary about the way in which the, the these residents are funded, so whether the local authorities of, of councils and so on will fund uh, individuals to live in these places or not, and there has to be a kind of process of application to, to get to that point. Um, so, I just thought that that was interesting, as that was an interesting reflection. And it might be something that is still available to watch if people listening to this podcast want to, to, to watch something uh, that sort of it reflects, I guess, on, on Asylum and, and this film. But yeah, my hot tip Katie Price, Autism and Me.
1: <laughs> All right, David, Georgia, Janet, we're going to have to wrap, wrap up there. Yeah. So, um, thanks everybody for joining me and watching this film and discussing it with me. It was like, I think, something very special to me. So I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about it.
0: Thanks for bringing it, Alex. It was
1: really interesting. Really Cool. All right. So we'll end it there for this week. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Thank you. You have been listening
0: to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, hosted by Georgia Bradburn, John James Laidlow, Alex Whittleson, Janet Harbord, and David Hartley. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.